It's good to be with you all again after uh, being on vacation last week. Uh, because of that, we're, we're back in Mark again. Uh, we're at Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 14 through 29. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us as we, uh, as we come to God's Word. Father, we need your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, um, the Spirit of of rejuvenation uh, to be poured out upon us like fresh and clean water, uh, to renew us, uh, to water the seeds of your word which are are being scattered out upon our hearts this morning. Uh, We need him to be uh, watering them, to blossom them into flourishing so that our faith might be strengthened and grow, that it might bear fruit, that it might be pleasing. We pray that, uh, that that faith would see and hold on to Jesus Christ more firmly and deeply than we did before, that we would see him more beautiful than we have before. Uh, would your spirit be upon uh, the man preaching here, uh, that he would be enabled and equipped to, to deliver your word uh, with with clarity uh, and with consistency to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. This is the word of God. And when they came to the disciples, actually maybe I should just take a, take a moment and say, as I realize here, as they came to the disciples, this is Jesus and Peter and James and John coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. I realize it's been two weeks since I've been up here preaching. Uh, so that's what's going on here. And so they're coming down the mountain. Uh, and when they came to the disciples, uh, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. 
And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Amen. Well, stories oftentimes come in the context of a broader story, for instance, like a a movie in a greater saga, like perhaps a trilogy or a a book in a series that's part of, again, the the greater series. And it's possible, having not read or seen the movies or knowing much of the story before, sometimes it's possible to pick up that book, to watch that movie, uh, to, to hear the story and still understand what's going on, right? But it's though when you've seen the whole, uh, or, or when you've re- read all of the stories before, when you, when you understand how that story is in, in, in uh, the arc of the greater story, the greater trajectory, it opens up its entire meaning and its depth, right? And the narratives in the Gospels that we have, just like this one here, are no exception, and including this story, When we understand what comes before it here, and we see it in the greater arc of the overall narrative and the the trajectory of the Gospel of Mark and what's come right before it, then we understand its meaning in new ways, in deeper ways, and I'd say even more beautiful ways too. Context helps us understand. These are not just random stories about Jesus that are stitched together, but there's real meaning in how that they're put together. In fact, I think one of the, 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 the both good things and the things that oftentimes are a hindrance to the ways that we read our Bibles are the, the chapters and verses, the versification that we have. It's, it's helpful as a reference in knowing where we are in the story and be able to, to go and look up things. But sometimes we forget that they're not inspired, uh, that they were added there later, and we actually break up and read the, stu- the stories and the narratives and just little nuggets apart from the greater story as a whole. And so what's the context in this greater arc, this trajectory here of what's happening in the Gospel of Mark? Well, let's think back over the last few weeks here. Before we were at chapter 8, starting in verse 34, where Jesus has those words. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. In other words, he says, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your life. Right? You've got to give up and deny yourself, but you will gain everything. And Jesus knows that's a difficult thing, which is why then, right after that, the beginning of chapter 9, the passage before this, that we hit two weeks ago then, is the transfiguration. Jesus leads Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, up the mountain, and he reveals himself in his glory. He shows the kingdom of God coming in power, and they see it, and they are absolutely bowled over. This is the display of the kingdom of God coming in power. And so now we are here in verse 14, our passage this morning. And they're making their way down the mountain. And you have to imagine what Peter, James, and John are thinking. Like, what have we just seen? They're bowled over by this glory. The glory of of the transfigured Jesus Christ. And they're thinking about all of that. Wasn't that incredible? Oh my goodness. And they get down here at the foot of the mountain back down. And what do they now see? They come out of light and glory. And they come down and descend back down into darkness. They descend into chaos. They see despair. They come down and see a crowd that's arguing, but more importantly, they see, what are they arguing about? A boy who's been possessed by a demon ever since childhood, his earliest childhood. And that that demon that is intent on destroying him. 
throwing him into convulsions, uh, rolling him around, trying to cast him into fire and water in an effort to destroy him. Now, this demon manifests its destruction through these epileptic symptoms here. Uh, it's important, though, for us to note, though, that we can't conclude, though, based on this passage, we can't come to the conclusion that certain sicknesses here are because of demonic forces here. For one thing, this is a certain moment that's happening in redemptive history. Um, but also, though, it doesn't take into account everything that we see in the Bible as well about how the, re- the reality of the fallen world is broken, that everything is broken and fallen at its fundamental core. And because of that, there is sickness, there is disease, there is pain. But what we can say, though, definitively here, is that this demon, though, was using these convulsive symptoms, these epileptic symptoms, to exert his control over this boy and in an attempt also to destroy the image of God that this boy had. This demon was trying to get back at God by by trying to destroy the image of God that this boy had. But what we have here as we step back there is this interesting juxtaposition now, don't we, right? Here they are before on the mountaintop, the mountaintop of glory, the glory of Christ, the power of Jesus Christ and, and of his kingdom shining forth. But then at the same time at the bottom of the mountain, right at the foot, what's going on? The darkness and the evil that's covering the present age. It's a stark reminder here that the kingdom of God might be present. It might be shining, but so also is there the kingdom of darkness right now as we live. And that we live under the reality of shadow, the reality of sorrow, the reality of pain. I know some of us here, some of you all are bearing that acutely right now. I know some of you might also be uh, having suffered that or are suffering it in ways that are just unaware to me or that some of you are still bear the scars and the trauma of sorrow and darkness in the past. And this juxtaposition here puts though to rest this, any expectation of triumphant living in the present. You know, we talk about the, the proverbial mountaintop experience, Right? You know, going to summer camp and coming back and being, oh, I had, su- you know, I am, I am on fire. I had such a spiritual experience. Or coming back from a, a short-term missions trip. Or even sometimes just deep, uh, wonderful experiences that we have and moments in our lives that are of just deep spiritual renewal, right? We have this, this spiritual high or a period of renewal only then to eventually come down back from the mountain and back into reality, Right? In fact, that happens sometimes maybe for some of us on a weekly basis. Because we gather here in worship on the Lord's day. And what this time is here is God is calling us and he's present with us. There is, in one sense, we may not see it, it may not be visible, that there is a very real entrance into glory because we are coming into God's presence in our times of worship here. What this time is, is an anticipation of, of heaven. We are with the Lord. We are with, uh, we are with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He is renewing us. He's giving us promises. In one sense, this is where uh, the heaven and earth are coming and meeting just very faintly in this way. In a way of anticipating what it will be like someday. Like the world is dark. But in this moment here, even right now, the door into the heavenly places is cracked. 
and the light shines forth from the doorway. And we get a peek, or we get a poke our head in the doorway. Maybe we even get a step into the entryway and bask for these moments in the glorious presence of God. We get a peek into the, into the new creation glory. And then what happens? We leave the doors here, we walk out, and we walk back out into the world that's full of darkness. And we're reminded that we still have our diseases. We still have our aches. We still have our pains. We still have our scars. And we walk back into the shadowy world and we look back longingly at the light that's coming through between the door and the threshold. We look at the light that's shining through the blinds behind us there. And any things are anything but triumphant. They're, they're non-glorious. And in a way, just like Peter and James or John were walking down the mountain after beholding the glory of God, after beholding Christ in the transfiguration, the kingdom of God in power, and they are come down and are reminded again that shadow still exists. Can you imagine the disappointment that they must have been feeling? Can you imagine the dissatisfaction that they must have had? See, the shadow is still real. Shadow is still real and it touches all of us, but the glory, though, the glory of God, the glory of Christ is also still real. And because of that fact, then we can sing the beautiful words from Horatio Spafford that he wrote uh, in uh, the early 1800s after, or sorry, 1870s. Within just a three-year period, he lost his four-year-old son. He had incredible financial losses that ruined him in the great Chicago fire. And then he lost his four daughters at sea over the Atlantic. And right after that, though, in spite of losing so much, he was still able to write these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, how's it go? It is well, it is well with my soul. I had a conversation this last week when we were on on vacation with a a friend of mine, um, and he was talking to me about how he had an opportunity to go to a worship conference with, uh, with 8,000 people there. And there was a moment, though, where he was t- said it was just so profound, where Johnny Erickson Tata uh, led the people, all the 8,000 people, singing this song, It Is Well With My Soul. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, she has, for the, uh, the, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of her life, been a quadriplegic, paralyzed from uh, the shoulders down due to a tragic a diving accident. Uh, she's uh, dealt with cancer. And as she was explaining up on stage also, uh, that she had uh, nearly died several times from COVID. And still, though, she, she sat up there in her wheelchair and led what he said was not actually 8,000 people singing It Is Well With My Soul. He said 7,999 because he was unable to sing through all of the tears knowing her story. How is that possible? How is it possible to sing something like that, to be able to still say It Is Well With My Soul with so much darkness? Friends, it's because of the glory. It's because of the glory of the transfigured Christ. That even as we leave this place here, as as we leave the glory of God here in the ways that we can see it, in this place here, and we go out, we walk into a world of darkness, glory isn't temporary in this place. 
Glory has permanent residence. Glory has permanent residence with Jesus Christ as he is sitting, ascended at the right hand of God. And it is it's permanent residence with him as he is already there and will bring us there someday. And it will, that glory will break into the world someday. Friends, walking out from these walls, walking back down the mountain, the glory of Jesus Christ and his kingdom in power is still for us. It's just as real as the darkness is. And that's something that we need to keep in mind and hold on to. Again here, looking, the disciples have just come down from this glory, from the mountain of Jesus. They've seen the glory of the transfigured Jesus and they walk down back into the darkness. But the glory of the kingdom, the glory of Jesus Christ also though, isn't just a comfort, but it also rises up to challenge and to confront the darkness. It advances in power, and it goes to confront this demon and cast the demon out from the boy, right? Jesus steps forward not only in in compassion for this boy and his father, but he also steps forward in power. And he rescues, by his word, he rescues this boy from the grip of evil, and he restores him. See, the kingdom works in very real power. Glory and power, all of this aren't just mere future realities, but they work powerfully even right now. And it pierces the darkness. The glory of Jesus pierces the darkness. It punches holes for the light and the glory to shine through, It even shine brighter through even, just as the grip of Satan and the grip of evil is loosened. And as recipients of glory, it turns us into protesters. We get to protest against the darkness. We live knowing the glory of Jesus Christ. We live knowing the glory of his kingdom. We live as citizens of that. And we rebel against the evil and the shadow that lies over the world. We enter into this glory here in worship. And then we go out into a darkened world. Yet as we go out, we protest We live and serve knowing the glory that's to come, knowing the glory that is still to, or knowing the glory that's here, but also the glory that's still to come. So what do I mean by by protest? Well, the protest is to buck against the idea that this present darkness is just the way things are. We protest by saying this is not the way things are meant to be. We protest by holding on to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. There's a fantastic book that I would commend all of, to all of you called Rejoicing in Lament by a man named Todd Billings, who is a seminary professor, but he's also a man who is uh, wrestling through incurable cancer. And he writes his book as he deals with incurable cancer and life in Christ. And in this book, he references a conversation with a nurse who's in a terminal illness wing at a children's hospital, perhaps one of the worst, most uh, desperate places that we could think of and what and they, as he's referencing this conversation what good was this doing what good was this this nurse doing there by uh, in in a in a in a children's ward of, for, for terminal illness there was this actually changing the world what was this well she he goes on to con- continue that the reason why she continued her service was as a quote an act of protest and bearing witness that this wasn't how the world was meant to be. And he writes these words, The point of compassionate action is not to change the world. 
It is to be faithful and to bear witness in word and deed to a different kingdom, that of King Jesus. As our lips say, thy kingdom come, we pray and act as revolutionaries who protest against the darkness in this present evil age. Revolutionaries who protest against the darkness in this present evil age. We protest in our service. We protest here, not changing the world, especially if we understand how broken the world really is, and if we understand the magnitude and the depths of it. But who, though, can change the world, though, because of his power? Jesus Christ. And we serve because we hope that there is a better reality that's still to come. And we hope because we trust in Jesus and his glory. And friends, it happens in simple ways. It happens even by our service and the everyday callings that we're given. Bearing witness to the hope that is for those who are in Jesus Christ. And our acts of protest as we engage in them, they pull down the towers of darkness in this world. The kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of shadow and evil, our acts of faithfulness and hope bearing witness to the kingdom. What is it that we heard earlier in our reading? They destroy strongholds. They storm the gates of hell and they testify that Jesus Christ is Lord. No one else. And it's not we who accomplish this, though. We aren't the ones who bring this about, but it's Christ's power. It's the power of Jesus Christ working, though, through us. Now, the disciples couldn't cast out this demon. They attempted to, but they couldn't. And Jesus commissioned them, if you think, though, in in Mark chapter 6, earlier, you know, it was, uh, you know, some weeks back, But he commissioned them and sent them out to go and to cast out demons. And so, don't you think they figured they could still do it? They'd done it before. They'd had incredible success in doing so. Couldn't they do it again? And perhaps maybe even they were trying to emulate their master's compassion also as they were following him in his power. But yet still they were unable to. In verse verse 18, at, at the end here, The father's response is, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Uh, There's the emphasis there, actually, in his response is about their inability. It emphasizes them not actually having the power of being overpowered by the demonic force in this boy, of being something that they've not not run up against. So why did they have their failed attempt? I mean, everything that they'd done before, why their failed attempt? Because of this, a misplaced reliance. It was a misplaced reliance. I mean, how many times have we relied upon ourselves and our giftings in order to bring about success? How many times have we relied upon our own gifts and our own, our, our own abilities to try to bring about some sort of ministry success rather than actually trusting in, in the one who empowers us, rather than trusting in the giver of those gifts? See, they tried to exert the gift that Jesus gave them. They'd had prior success before, but what was missing in all of it was the power of God. It was a misplaced reliance, not on the power of God at work through them. See, Jesus gives gifts to all of his people. He gives gifts to his church. Everyone, everyone here in Christ has a gift for the building up of the body, not only for its its widening, but also for its deepening. That's a privilege that he gives us. It's part of actually Jesus as being this benevolent king, a benevolent conquering king. 
All right? He redeems people from the darkness. He pulls us from the clutches of, of sin and darkness. But then, not only is that, he, he, as he rescues us then from the kingdom of Satan, he gives us gifts. It's the spoils of war. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the life and vitality. And he gives us these gifts empowered by the Spirit to then employ for his purposes, even joining part in the war effort. But again, here's the thing. The gift comes from Jesus, but also the power for its use comes through him as well. They come through his spirit who's at work in them. And he turns us into conduits for the spirit to go forth, to spill out into the world, and to do his recreative work that he does so well. And so what's that mean? It means that we need God to work. It means our misplaced faith and reliance that we have ends up with just simply a vain exercise of our gifts. And like the disciples, when we trust ourselves, when we trust in our abilities, when we trust in the gifts that we've been given, when we trust in the ways that we've had prior success, then we find ourselves to be really void of all power. That's evident when they ask Jesus why they couldn't do it. Jesus, why couldn't we cast out that demon? And his response was at the very end there. This kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. Why couldn't we cast it out? You didn't pray. You missed prayer. They had the prior gift. They had the prior calling. They had the prior success. But they missed the most important thing. They missed prayer. And what else is prayer than petitioning God to work in his power? See, prayer realizes our finitude. It acknowledges his might and it begs for him to be at work. They miss the very power. They miss the reliance upon God. Because really without him, what more could happen? What else could possibly happen? So this here is a call to prayer. It's a call to seek his face in the face of darkness. Friends, do you understand the magnitude of the problems that are in this world? Do you understand the suffering and the pain and the misery? Do you understand the power of darkness that it still sinks its talons, its claws into this present age? Do you understand what, what it does to the human heart? Do you understand how darkness and sin, what, what it has upon our own lives? Friends, do you understand the power of sin and its destruction and roots which runs so incredibly deep in the world and in us? But don't just stop there, though. We cannot just stop there. We cannot just simply look at the power of darkness without also looking at the power of God. Friends, do you understand the power of God? But not only that, do you understand his willingness as well? And if so, for all of those, then you will pray. We will pray in the face of overwhelming darkness and looking at the the glorious face of God shining upon us and in his power. Only the power of God can break those strongholds And prayer is the key that opens up the floodgates of his merciful and his just power into the world. So why do we pray? We pray because we believe that God is at work in the world. We pray because we believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. We pray because Jesus' cross and resurrection have conquered sin and death and evil in order to bring renewal. We pray because all things are possible for those who believe. And those who believe are those who pray. As we think about belief, though, we also have the statement 
from, from the Father here in verse 24. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. And I think that's one of the most honest statements that you can find in the Bible. And one of these statements that I think most of us can identify with. I believe, but there is so much within me that is having such a hard time actually holding on, though. I am holding on to a thread of hope, right? I'm holding on and my grip is weak and my fingers are tired. See, the Father has faith. The Father has an imperfect faith, though, too, and he believes but he is aware of just how much trouble he has holding on. He knows how weak his hands really are, and he is conscious of his doubt, and he is trying to overcome it. And he cries out to the one who is the object of his faith, and he admits his failure, but still he reaches out as best as he can. Now, why do you think he had this element of unbelief? I mean, after all, it's Jesus standing there right before him, right? But what else was there? Who else was there? Not just Jesus, but also his son right there. His son's convulsing on the ground, just as he had for the the majority of his life. The demon who rendered him deaf and mute. When was the last time you think he had a conversation with his son? Who knows how many times it had thrown him into those convulsions and tried to destroy him? Who knows how many times, countless times through his life, that he had to pull him out of the water or pull him out of the fire and tend to his wounds? And for years and years, this dad had to watch his boy suffer like this. Jesus, can you do something? Because this is my life. A lifetime of suffering and misery. And it has a way of convincing us that this is just how things are sometimes, right? We want to believe, but yet we know how difficult it is because we've grown used to life with the pain and the suffering and the despair. I want to believe, but how? Because death and resurrection speaks a louder word. Jesus casts out the demon, but note there, everyone thinks that he's dead. Is this such a violent act as the demon comes out and he's laying there? Everyone thinks that the boy is dead. But what happens though? Jesus takes him up by the hand and he, and he raises him up. It's a picture of resurrection. It's a picture, a symbolic picture of, his, of death and rising. It is a picture of hope that though we suffer, we will rise. It's a picture of what it means for Jesus' kingdom to come in power and glory, overwhelmed though, overwhelming the darkness. Friends, the dead will rise again, and this boy was raised into a renewed life. Resurrection and renewal and hope. All of those things come to us. All of those things only exist because Jesus Christ has died and because he is raised. Only Jesus is able to redeem from Satan's grip. Because Jesus crushed him at the cross. Friends, only Jesus is able to raise us up into glory because he himself was raised and that tomb is empty. Because he himself, even right now, sits in glory and gives us his promises and is praying for us even right now. I believe but help my unbelief. Jesus is praying for you as he sits in glory. And no other word or power has any other say. Not disease does not have any say, any final ultimate say over you. Your body failing does not have any ultimate say over you. Our consciences 
in our times of feeling guilty, in our moments of unbelief or trying to believe harder, those don't have any final say. I believe, help my unbelief. Friends, resurrection speaks. Resurrection speaks a louder word. It says that all things are possible. Resurrection says that he is able. God is able and he works in power. Resurrection says that we can hope even in present darkness no matter what it is. And friends, resurrection says that the transfiguration and glory that are Jesus will also be ours and they are on the horizon and the shadows are passing. Resurrection is true hope for people who are struggling to hold on, who need strength just to make it yet another day. And resurrection is promised at the symbol. It is a a sign of Jesus' promise that he gives us that we will feast with Christ. The glory that Christ Jesus is in right now is he's waiting for us to be seated with him in glory around that table. That uh, it is reaching back here to us right now. And that's a promise that's given to us that's sealed by the blood of Jesus. The blood that he shed upon the cross. The blood of the covenant And he's always faithful to his covenants. And he gives us this. He gives us the bread. He gives us the cup here to bolster our hope in the present. Because just as surely as Christ has died and Christ has risen, Christ will also come again. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would encourage us. Encourage our our faith, and fix our eyes upon you in the times when we are tempted to despair. We believe, help our unbelief, and empower us. Empower us to believe and empower us to go forth with that belief and to rebel against the darkness which is in the world as we testify to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of glory, which is present but is still to come. And prepare us then as we come to the table. Fix in our hearts the promise of Jesus that he will come again. And that glory speaks something much louder, much bolder than anything else. Use it to empower our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.